What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Uncensored Critic Podcast. Thank you for joining me once again for another episode. I really appreciate you tuning in as always. So thank you a million times over. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome today, Catherine McNamara. Uh, and I'll just to give you a small sample of the incredible work that this lady's done is she holds an MA in Drama and Theatre from Royal Holloway University of London, a PGCE in Drama from Central School of uh, Acting, course leader of the MA Applied Theatre course and also the head of school for the University of Portsmouth from 2019 to 2022. She's also a project partner in the Wellcome Trust's Rethinking Sexology project at the University of Exeter, leading the Transacting Project between Central and Gendered Intelligence Company, the project lead in a collaboration with the Active Communities Network, raising awareness of child criminal exploitation, CCE, and is a specialist in applied theatre. And if that's not enough, she's also the commander in chief of the Guildford School of Acting. She looks over everything and decides what goes on. And she's doing an impeccable job already, nearly a year into her project uh, at GSA already. And I can't wait to see what more you do with the school. So, Catherine, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, it's always funny to hear a list like that um, when it's about me. But yeah, those are all things I've done in my life so far. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> There's more to come, I'm sure. So um, so the bulk of today's episode, we're going to talk about your work in applied theatre and the work that you did. Um, of course, your paper, Cold Chips and Money, which was yourself and Alexandra Russell, which you produced in 2021. But we'll get on to that in just a second. So to kick things off, start a question for everyone uh, to begin at the beginning. So where did the love of drama and theatre and to be involved in applied theatre, where did it all start for you? Where did it come oh, from? Gosh, um, if I think about why someone asked me recently, kind of, you know, why do you do what you do? How did that all begin? Um, and I was thinking, actually, right back to my days at school, um, and I was thinking, why did I first really enjoy drama? Because I wasn't the most confident kid. Um, and I am not an, a trained actor. That isn't my kind of professional background. Um, but I do remember very vividly an experience which now has to be kind of, I want to say, almost 40 years ago so yeah a long time ago but it's still really vivid I was in um a short play at school called the laundry girls and I played a character called Mrs Gimlet and this play is about four young girls women who are laundry girls um and this it was a story about kind of hardship and you know the lives and trials of these young women in Victorian England and my character was this kind of really strict tough older woman who kind of had to run the laundry and these girls would like you know be always chatting and always talking about their lives um, and I, I remember I mean it was just drama at school but I remember it so clearly and I really enjoyed it um so much for for lots of different reasons um and I think you know those are really formative experiences the kinds of things that that you kind of get into and that capture your attention your imagination when you're a kid so yeah I, I would attribute um a lot of my interest in drama to even as early as you know uh early days of secondary school like age 11 12. <laughs> I could see you looking at a lot like a washing machine going 
you were the inspiration. <laughs> and in the play, in that play, we had these old irons that were like literally, you know, cast iron, heavy, mm. really heavy props. Because all the way through, everybody was like ironing, like linen and laundry. Um, so yeah, just actually. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? But that kind of historical, like it was the first time I think I'd really, through school, had this experience of thinking about stories and people and human beings and lives and lives different to my own. Um, and it was like this really tangible kind of sense of what 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 this story was all about. So, yeah, I don't know if I think about look, the laundry girls and I watch my own washing machine, but I'm glad I don't have to iron the way they did life is a bit easier now it's true <laughs> yeah no, that's a good bonus um so tell us about um your work in applied theater so mm. what made you want to get involved in that specifically yeah that's a that's a good question um so my route into I suppose my career is through teaching mm -hmm. so I did a PGCE you mentioned that in your list yep and central um, yeah yeah so at one point I kind of trained to be a drama teacher I did always know that I wanted to go into further education. So even starting on that that program, it's you know a one year quite intensive program. I knew that I wanted to teach the kind of sixteen to eighteen age range rather than going to school teaching. Yeah. Um, so I did my PGC, which qualifies you to do either, but I did go straight into FE, and so straight away I was working with, you know, young people, young adults. Um, teaching on BTEC National Diploma Performing Arts and A-Level Theatre Studies. Um, so from, you know, the my first proper job, if you like, I was um, working with young people who had a passion and an interest in theatre performance and drama. Um, and I think that is really crucial to my then path through the years. Um, I think it's I think it's just coupled with the fact that I as a as a human as a person myself I wasn't ever I never thought I want to be an actor I never thought um I didn't have the kind of artistic abilities to go into any kind of design routes um but that kind of love for stories and people kept me in that kind of world of drama and theater and performance but I found my place as a teacher Mm. Uh, or facilitator um and you know when you're doing that job you also get to direct so the student you know one of one of the one of my my favorite memories that will never leave me um is of one of the productions we did and we did many but um the BTEC national students at the time we worked on 448 psychosis yes um, the Sarah Kane piece yeah um, and, you know, again, it was just this the time and space that we had to kind of explore this text and learn about Sarah Kane as an artist and as a person and kind of really work together and reflect on what she was what she was saying and what she was doing and how, how you know, what that play is all about. Um, so, again, yeah, those experiences of immersing yourself in a creative process with other people. Um, just brilliant what a brilliant way to spend your days so I think from from those days on um yeah I really like teaching I really really like teaching <laughs> and so um I've kind of that's that's the the 
I suppose, yeah, the pathway that I've kind of stayed in. And then over time, you know, as you get older and a bit more experienced, you kind of, I, I anyway, have taken on management roles and kind of grown and developed into them. And I think for me, there's a connection between the, the, the skills and the kind of practice of teaching and you know leadership and management and these things kind of are not like completely separate for me they're kind of yeah there's beautiful connections in the ways that really essentially it's always all about people and um, what we can do together and achieve together so um so when it came to applied theater i think it's an extension of that really it's again about creative processes Mm -hmm. spending time with groups of people um and and more often uh, I was spending time with um people who were not professional actors, you know. So it would be kind of it's, so applied theatre is all about using drama and theatre and performance in settings where you know you're not in a theatre space. You might be in a community hall, or you might be in a classroom, or you might be anywhere else but a theatre. Often. Um, and you're working with people who are not necessarily trained or have had any kind of experience of, of theatre making, but collectively that's what you're kind of there to do, to use the art form, to, to talk, to discuss, to reflect and to try and say something about the world. Um, yeah, so over time that's just grown and grown and it's um, those kinds of spaces are spaces that I really enjoy being in and, and being involved in those processes still. Fantastic. And you mentioned there, um, 448 Psychosis, the mm. Sarah Kane play. And, you know, just going off what you were saying there about working with people and telling stories and sort of uh, finding finding what makes people who they are, you know, which I think a lot of what applied theatre is all about and theatre in general. But um, but that play had a very kind of very kind of 50-50 reaction from the critics. Mm. You know, mm. Some people really found it interesting and some people found it absolutely horrible. I think one critic even called it quote uh, a disgusting piece of filth yeah because um i had a someone who's been on the show christian patterson an actor who's been on the show he he did it um a few years ago and i think he might have been in the production and called it that a, a disgusting piece of filth because everything that it's all about um what was your take on the play did you mm. love it or did you hate it what did you, what did you what did you think absolutely love it um <laughs> really love it i love sarah kane's work a whole body of work um and you know, was just incredibly, um, yeah, struck as many people are by mm. her and her incredible ability to capture so many things about kind of human existence in her work, and do it so young as she was so young at the time when she wrote all, all of her plays. Mm. Um, so yeah, for me, I really liked. I really like it. And it was an opportunity, again, as a teacher, you know, you kind of, you have a group of students and they're going to study contemporary theatre and you make choices about the kinds of plays that you think they should know about, you know, um, Mm. as you're putting your your curriculum together as part of a module. And that's one I, at that point, um, decided, you know, this is, she's really important and this would be a really interesting piece for them to know about. And, you know, on, on a programme like that, BTEC National Diploma, which is brilliant, pro course, um, mm. they get the opportunity to find out about plays by doing it and putting it on its feet and kind of exploring it that way. Um, so, yeah, we that was one of the 
the pieces that we um staged so we put on kind of public production um yeah so again i guess as part of studying sarah kane you, we all are engaged in that conversation about what we think of this piece and what is it what is it saying or what are we understanding by it because you know it's a tricky it's a tricky piece <laughs> and there's a lot of room for interpretation and you know numbers on a page with no text and all of the stuff that you engage in when you're kind of navigating your way through that play um so yeah, I love it for that I love it for its puzzle and its questions it provokes in people whoever mm. whoever they might be but certainly for us at the time me and a, and a bunch of students it was just such a nice such a brilliant process to go through to kind of discover all of our interpretations of that play together amazing amazing mm. and that that's such a you know it's a play about looking at i think the darkness mm. and it's a it's something about when i was talking to uh my mum actually earlier about this sort of thing and um, your work in uh county lines which which we'll discuss in just a moment mm. you know it's all about bringing um the darkness into the light and all of us we have to sort of see what life is all about because life isn't all just sunshine and rainbows all the time you know there mm. is a darkness to it as well which we should feel comfortable in it's playwrights like sarah kane and and <clears throat> excuse me about um who want to engage us in that and yet sort of not be afraid of it if that yeah. if that makes sense yeah totally yeah and and um yeah they're complex issues aren't they you know it's about mental health and about the way society um is part of the problem is is almost creates the problems because mm -hmm. of the way things are structured and the ways people are kind of um forced to live and survive in a way that can you know this is so yeah i think all of these issues are just really they're really important serious vital issues that yeah we can't we can't not get into those things and think those things through but yeah i think it's i, I agree with you yeah hugely yeah. so uh, let's get on to your work with um county lines then yeah. um, i mentioned your paper uh cold chips and money which yourself and alexander russell wrote back in 2021 uh you you have a, a very keen interest and i've read the paper it's a really really lovely read um in cce the child criminal exploitation cases um for anyone who's not aware <clears throat> uh so county lines are a group of gangs which exploit and use young vulnerable children as couriers for drugs, cash, and weapons between cities and smaller towns, and they sell them via dedicated phone lines. And uh, Catherine has got some fantastic visions into how we can take this particular subject and put it into the theatre. And you spent a lot of time writing and you know researching about this. So tell me about your journey with this particular subject. Right. So um, it was in late 2019 maybe into just the beginning of 2020 and I met someone <clears throat> amazing um called Julian who works for Active Communities Network that you mentioned earlier so they they're an organization um based in multiple cities actually but um Julian uh, worked in Portsmouth and at the time I was working at the University of Portsmouth I just started there Mm -hmm. um, and he'd got in touch and he, uh, Active Communities Network, often works with young people who um, actually a whole range of different young people. But, but it's sometimes we people who maybe are, you know, 
may be at risk of getting into kind of more antisocial behaviours and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and their organisation is quite often um, engaged in sport, like lots of sport activities. It's about, you know, constructive kind of healthy activities that young people can get involved in. But at the time when I met Julian, he had just secured a bit of funding to do an art project. Mm-hmm. And he um, said himself that he's, he's you know, that's not really his, his background or his skill set. So he's looking for people to work with. Um, so we uh, started talking. He, you know, he spoke to me about this. This was money to fund an arts initiative that kind of was about trying to tackle in its own way um child criminal exploitation and do some work to begin to um, prevent young people from getting drawn into that kind of world so I was really interested I had, didn't have any experience up until that point in this area in this subject area but I do as you said have experience of using drama and theatre and other art forms mm-hmm. to explore and tackle kind of like social issues <laughs> if we do that I'm doing that because it's a bit of a funny expression yeah um so yeah I was really interested and then just to fast forward a little bit uh we said, yeah, let's do it. So we started talking about the form that this project would take. And we talked about theatre and education as a model, um, which is a fairly typical, fairly standard model of, you know, creating a, a shortish piece of theatre mm-hmm. and taking it into schools um, where, you know, audiences of young people can kind of see the play and engage with the ideas. And there's some kind of interactive part to that. Um, it's not my favourite model, although it can be brilliant, but speaking personally, and as I was going to be personally involved, mm. I was keen to explore other methods that were even more participatory. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, then suddenly there was a global pandemic. Boom. Ah, yeah. <laughs> um, so we stopped for a little bit and we were really thinking, like everybody was at the time, oh, should we just pause and this may pass and then we can kind of restart and do what we were planning to do. But it quickly became apparent that this was not going to be something quick that was, you know, over and done with. Badly not. So we started to rethink um, how we could carry on, but but we wouldn't be able to do something like, we wouldn't be able to go into schools. It was difficult to, you know, schools were locked down like everybody else was. So we had all these kind of problems to ponder. Um and what we basically decided to do was move away from the liveness of drama and performance. And we created instead a di- digital interactive story. So like everyone else <laughs> at the time, we went online. Um, we um, worked with some artists and other kind of creative people. Uh, and we used what it's an open source software thing called Twine, which, again, I hadn't heard of before, but I did lots of learning around that time. Yeah. So effectively, we wrote a Twine game, um, which is yes. kind of quite low tech, um, but but quite popular. There's quite a massive kind of, uh, you know, user population of Twine games particularly among young people. So this all all grew into an idea. Um, And then we started to work with loads of um, professionals in and around Portsmouth. So it was a kind of Hampshire-wide project. And we worked with people from 
um, the council who were involved in safeguarding and children's services. Mm-hmm. Um, there was someone from the missing, exploited and trafficked children's team. There was someone from the edge of care team. So that's people who work with children and young people who are kind of um, either, you know, likely to go into care or they're coming out of care, but they're very much, you know, in that that um, system. Mm-hmm. We worked with uh, someone from the police in Portsmouth. We worked with, yeah, a, quite a number of people who all had an interest in the ways that this kind of county lines, as it's known, or, you know, broadly speaking, the issue of child criminal exploitation all of these kind of it's like a multi-agency group of people mm-hmm. um to advise us basically on on you know if we're going to use an art form a story to try to do some good and try to kind of make an intervention of, of a sort um you know what should that story be about what should it be like you know what's gonna what's gonna be most effective so we spent quite a long time working with those people to make sure the story we wrote was in their eyes as a collective group of people mm-hmm. um you know fit for purpose and that was about um what age range we should target you know should this be about we just made lots of decisions around whether this should be a story for people who are already have already been drawn in and need to to kind of be helped to think about ways out mm-hmm. or might it be better if we're targeting young people who haven't yet been drawn in and we're trying to almost do like um, a contemporary version of like don't talk to strangers, you know, to kind of mm. raise awareness among mm. much younger people about the risks of um, of this kind of social phenomena, you know. So anyway, again, fast forwarding, uh, we created the story, which is called Cold Chips and Money. Mm-hmm. And with it goes as a resource pack for teachers and professionals Um and uh, all through that, we were hoping that by the time we'd finished, we'd, we would be able to go in as a project team with this digital resource and then do some workshops with young people in schools. But still, as the months went on, that still didn't look possible because of COVID. Uh, so again, we had to kind of rethink that a little bit. And what we did in the end was um, support teachers and some um, youth workers in a youth offending team to, to in, a, in a sense to deliver it themselves so with us uh talking with them prior to delivery of, of the session mm. and then afterwards we did lots of quite in-depth evaluation with them to, to hear how it went um we in the end uh despite the pandemic and all of those challenges we reached almost 1500 young people in different schools and the youth offending team in hampshire Wow. So, so we were really pleased with that actually yeah. we had that much engagement with this what was once upon a time going to be a piece of theatre and turned into mm. something different but nevertheless yeah. um yeah it's gone really well fantastic and what was the um reaction that you got from mm. many of the people that it reached yeah i mean it's really interesting because at that time you know just as we were making all these changes to how we were going to do what we were going to do and we had decided that children were still being exploited just mm. because the pandemic was happening. It, you know, it hadn't stopped. No, no. Um, people were trying, were finding different ways to draw young people into their networks and send them off to carry out this kind of, you know, these activities that people get children to do. 
So, so we decided it was really important and we still needed to do it. Um, we could, this couldn't wait until the pandemic had passed. But at the same time, of course, teachers in schools were like under so much pressure mm. to carry on doing what they needed to do. So everyone was under pressure. Yeah. Um, so a lot of our conversations were to help staff, I suppose, see the issue as we saw it, because in their world, they have all these priorities and I'm making my lights go on and off as I wave my arms in here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, what was a really big priority to us, obviously, may or may not have felt like it was as big a priority to them. But um, we did we did talk to enough people who lead um, PSHE in schools. So that's personal, social and health education. Mm-hmm. And those professionals were like, you know, this is an issue. Um, mm-hmm. And they were really interested in using this resource that's free and we're there to kind of help them pre- prepare and be ready. Mm-hmm. So the, the professionals, the teachers and the youth workers at the youth offending team were just so positive about it. Um, I suppose they were just curious and interested at first. And then once they got to, they had a go and did the story themselves, the story's got multiple um roots through it so it's a little bit like to anyone who's more my age that might be listening to this it's like the choose your own adventure stories of what I think the 1980s so you know you can kind of if you want um everyone to get shot by a laser gun go to page 44 <laughs> or if you want them all to be rescued go to page 62 and you can choose the way you want the story to go okay. and that's kind of how our story works you've got to make some decisions along the way so the te- the professionals really liked that kind of very interactive mode and it's really engaging. And, you know, for me, that comes right back to what we were talking about before about why is applied theatre so good? Mm. Um, and, and for me, it's this, for me, it's absolutely obvious that mm. the art, the art form is the thing that is so incredibly engaging. Mm. And so, yeah, it is more fun and more, your imagination is caught if you're 11, 12 years old in school and you're doing this twine game and making decisions about this character and what he's going to do and where they're going to go, then if you're just talking and just having a conversation, it's like you're mm. functioning on a, on a whole different level or, or in a completely different way. Mm. So, yeah, that's that was kind of the overall response was that people agreed that, yeah, it's really engaging, that all their young people in their classes got straight into it and really enjoy playing it and the conversations that kind of came out of that because we encourage people to stop at certain points in the story and have discussions about key things and um yeah they were really positive really positive so we're going to do it all again essentially we're doing right. it all again in Surrey yeah yeah because that's really making an awareness of something that's mm. very very much a you know a, a daily occurrence yeah country and across the world yeah um chris no in your um program so um i did some research into looking into um the you know exploitation cases just a little bit more mm-hmm. and um i think this came from the children's society the charity i think that you're actually connected to i think in a way as well is uh it's like this various stages of how this occurs in a way and there's three stages. There's the targeting stage, the test stage, and the trap stage. I mean, was mm. was any of this covered in your in yeah your, well yeah? So just to so we're not connected with the children's society. Oh sorry. No no it's fine. Just like they're really well respected, like really you know brilliant organisation. So we look to them for 
information and kind of guide, you know, we, we read their policies and their, um, you know, the research that they carry out and the reports that they write. I would use that as part of kind of my research in a way. Okay. So yeah, we were guided by that as much as those conversations with the professionals as well. Um, and our story, in a way, kind of tracks those three stages that you've just pointed to there. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a fairly typical story, although there are not that many stories of this kind out and about. So there's a really good film called County Lines, mm-hmm. um, and it has a similar story. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's for a reason. That's because that is the the kind of trajectory that a young person might find themselves within um so yeah our story has that kind of um you meet some people they seem to be friendly and they're befriending you and um everything seems nice our young our protagonist in the story um is having a bit of a difficult time there's another kid at school that's a pain that keeps like banging into them and knocking their food over so like it's a it's hard Mm. um and then there is someone who's suddenly kind of there just just in a gentle way standing up for them um and just being quite a positive presence in their life yeah Um, so that's that early phase and then yes they're tested they're tested to see um if they are loyal to the to this person and if you know they'll do them a favor um so that 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 person who really is is going to become the exploitative figure is actually just trying out where you know what will this kid do or are they do they need friendship and company companionship um mm. to the point where they will cross lines that perhaps mm. they may they, they shouldn't um and that's about you know again it's a bit of a cliche but it's a true a truism you know will you take this envelope or this box or package yeah. to this address and it's like doing a favor for someone don't without asking questions um so that's the testing and then yeah once you're once a child <clears throat> as as is in, become involved to that extent they are then really trapped i mean that's the word you used and i guess yeah it, it works as a word because it's difficult to then extrapolate yourself and get out of that kind of situation Mm. and so that's what our story explores um and it finishes at a point where I guess things are left a bit open and there are a couple of different endings Mm -hmm. um so with I don't want to give too much away but yes Mm -hmm. there's um room for teachers or youth workers to for everyone to come to the end of the story wherever they get to and the conversation is, you know, what would happen next? Um, so there's room for the imagination uh-huh. or for young people to kind of have some knowledge because they live in the world and, you know, they read stories about what's happened as much as anybody else. Um, but, yeah, we follow that that arc. Yeah, that's great. And I think, yeah, you've tapped, you tapped into, like, the the journey. I suppose your, your programme sort of shows the journey of from the beginning until essentially to the point of no return in a way because when you get to stage three the trap stage and then you know i've read this i watched this report and that's when suddenly all the niceties stop and then psychological abuse kicks in yeah and suddenly you're locked in this relationship so i probably coined a phrase you're kind of locked in this relationship with the devil and there's there's no way out unless you're 
and very tragically in the case of some of these kids between the ages on average 12 to 15 mm. are either seriously injured or in some cases been shot and um there's some know, really awful yeah. stories yeah and yeah. you know it's um it's an issue that is it's once you start to research and kind of read um the extent of the problem you know it's nationwide i think every police force in the country reports cases of this nature mm. it's not isolated just to cities um at all you know it's it's um it's fundamentally about people who are going to exploit other people for their own gain. And, you know, people have found that they can use children and children are less obviously, less obvious and, and won't be kind of spotted or detected as quickly as, you know, um, adults who are engaged in criminal activity. So it's, yeah, it's, it's clever. People that are involved in this work are, are they're not, they're not, you know they're clever manipulative people and so mm. by the time a young person is drawn in so much um you know in a sense maybe they've been bought stuff they might have got a bike or some clothes or you know food or whatever it might be yeah. they've been groomed and so they they you now owe this person something and it's kind of yeah payback time um and often yes the mood will turn yeah. And yeah, the threats might begin. I think the thing about our story, um, and this came out a lot through working with all of the professionals that I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. they wanted our story because we're aiming it at kind of age 11 and 12, like year seven and eight of school. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is it's trying to kind of speak to young people who, um, on the whole, are, haven't yet been drawn in, but needs an awareness of the fact that this is a thing and it could happen. Yeah. Um. They, they wanted us to be to be really clear that there is a way out. Mm -hmm. Um. Because of course it feels like there absolutely isn't. If you're a young person and you're now living with fear and intimidation, and so the story kind of has several different um options of kind of you know it's about giving making it clear that you can speak to people and that, you know, we, everyone ideally would have a trusted adult, at least someone in their lives. If it's not your parents, but it's somebody that you can go and speak to. Mm -hmm. um, and also trying to kind of communicate something about the, the idea that you can report this to the police. I mean, that's a whole massive complex issue in and of itself, but... Yeah. I think a lot of young people would think they have now done something wrong. You know, they may have done something that's a criminal act in and of itself and they'll get in trouble. But mm. the important thing from the professionals was to make really clear that actually um, children who've been drawn in in this way are victims, although a lot of young people wouldn't want to think of themselves as victims. So again, it's really layered, it's really complex, but to try mm. to kind of, I suppose, instill the idea that um, you know, this was not your fault, and you, you know, you you can get support and help, and that people will help you to come out of the situation, and yeah. that you're trapped, and you don't have to do it, and that's not it forever. You know, yeah, yeah. I just and th this was a question I sort of I thought about sending to you, but I thought I'd send it over anyway. But uh, what would you say was when you were putting all this together and you're reading all these stories? What was one like? What would you say was the worst story that you came across? 
I mean, loads, loads, to be honest, and they're all heartbreaking. Um, yeah. I think, I suppose, the things, if I think back to some of the stories I've read, gosh, I mean, the things that stick out in my mind are um, actually accounts from parents. So I'm a parent. Mm-hmm. And when you're reading um, about a case like this and it's written by a parent who's telling you their experience or their perspective on what happens to their child, yeah, it's so awful um, because they see their child who might be 13 or 14 years old, mm-hmm. you know, go from the kid that they've known up until that point and then suddenly something is changing and they don't quite know what and they don't know if it's school or is it friendships, you know, is it um, their mental health? It's like as a parent, you're kind of trying to give your child independence as they get a bit older. And yet you obviously you don't want them to go out if you don't know where they are. So there's this dilemma. And then to read an account from a parent who's saying, you know, then they stopped replying to messages or their phone was turned off or they kept, they were really late home more and more, their mood changed and they're almost seeing their child change mm. and they still don't know why because it's the secrecy and kind of shame attached to what this child's going through. I think that was, that those, those kinds of cases really struck yeah. me as a kind of, yeah, I guess a parent and a person who's done lots of teaching and worked with lots of young people to just think I absolutely can see how that will happen and then how that child is drifting further and further away and how much you want to kind of help them but then it's such an awful situation because yeah a child can very easily withhold all of that information from a parent because it's because of the nature of the issue so yeah cases of of where you really get an insight from a parent's point of view is 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 chilling yeah Yeah. the silence is the deadliest thing Mm. in all this because there's no insight there's no talk about what's going on yeah it's just the silence and you're left with your own assumptions and just thinking is this it no it can't be that is this it now? Yeah, wondering like what is going on and why is this child kind of drifting away from me? And you're, you know, that that's um awful. And I guess, yeah, reading stories of parents who um found out one way or another what was going on, and then you know it's a bit depressing, but the accounts where they realised what was going on, mm-hmm. they did start to communicate with their child and they tried to get help. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, um, efforts, quite, you know, big efforts made to get help from different services and agencies, whether it's the police or schools or, you know, the desperation, if you like, of a family trying to get help for this child. Yeah. Um, and I think certainly 10 years ago, five years ago, um maybe children would have been seen more as kind of young antisocial behavior kind of or they are you know their their mm. criminal activity was seen as criminal activity rather than you know the result of having essentially been groomed by manipulative older people mm. and i think you know even in the last 5 years we've come quite a long way in terms of seeing seeing this situation this kind of issue for what it is um but yes it's 
it's quite it's it's not a new phenomena of course like people yeah, have course. been manipulating children for their own gain for a very long time but i think the ways that that professionals and this kind of multi-agency approach are seeing the issue from that child's point of view has changed quite a lot in recent years i think for the better but mm. um yeah there's a long way to go there's a long way to go to tackle it yeah because then again just sort of you know watching these documentaries and like news reports and stuff you know like you say the it feels like the children so they come from there's a lot of mention of orphans there's a mention of people coming from broken families people going from detention centers you know it's all these people growing up with you know with a sort of a lack of love in their life and no one to sort of hold them and say you know everything's going to be okay you know you've got yeah. this you know make sure you stay safe call me if you need anything just just simple things like that and when there's an absence of love in someone's life you know then, then that can just sort of tail off into you know not only just things like this but other things as well you know it's it's quite it's quite scary it's quite scary. yeah well, and, that, and if there is that gap that if that love is not there there's a gap to be filled by someone yeah. And there's a, you know, it's an opportunity in somebody's mind. That's a weakness in a, in a young person or, a, you know, a kind of opportunity to kind of fill that gap. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, really interestingly, yes, um, a lot of young people who are drawn into criminal um, behaviours like this might be, you know, refugees and asylum seekers, people who haven't yeah. got, as you say, that kind of, um, I guess support and love and whatever around them but also actually and, and yeah. I guess maybe this surprised me at first when I was first reading about it but it's as much children who on the face of it have got all those things you know um so you you know you would easily read about a case of it of a kid coming out of um a, you know a school let's let's these are all the cliches now I'm going to hate myself for saying things like this but, no, but it's a more, real. It's a more real. affluent area let's say a more middle class school um a child who's from a family unit where they have you know two parents like the, the opposite of the kind of single parent family social yes. deprivation type cliche let's do the other cliche mm. but those children are targeted as well you know um i think it's it's a, it's somehow about um that something that kind of gets beyond or transcends class in a way although money is such a massive part of people's lives and lack of it of course makes you vulnerable there are things that make people more vulnerable but I do also think that every child you know has the potential to feel lonely and alone and like they don't fit they don't belong and they're not they haven't got like as good of friends and friendships as others and you know there's I think this kind of um think it's really hard to be a kid <laughs> I think it's really hard to be 12 years old at secondary school no matter what your family background no matter what your socioeconomic background is and actually I think that's what people who are going to manipulate kids zoom in on you know so yes these there are lots of factors that make someone more vulnerable and if you're in the care system like that's the whole that's there's like lots of evidence that kind of would tell us who is most vulnerable or more vulnerable but actually all children can be susceptible to being manipulated and, and groomed and I guess that's why 
um, all of those people that are involved in kind of children's services were really keen on this idea because it's because we're trying to say even to young people in that lesson when they use it and they're going through the story this isn't something that affects other kids like this isn't something that will only be about those other kids who are like not you yeah. this is something that could happen you could find yourself chatting one day to some people in the park and it feels really <clears> nice <throat> and it feels really positive and they're funny oh, and oh, they yeah. you know invite you to go and get chips with them or whatever um, but be careful, you know, be aware, be intelligent and kind of have this knowledge, just at least have knowledge of the fact that this is how some people operate. Yeah. Yeah. And just just to back up that, there was a, a report from, uh, what's the name? So Joe Calvori, who was in Islington. No, sorry, not, not Joe. That was a different one. Uh, Karen Manuels, who's the interim chair of the Child Safety Guarding Practice Review Panel. And this was from... When was this from uh july the 30th 2020 and she reiterated a lot of things that you said there and some of the things she said was uh the cases weren't the stereotypical children you would think would get involved in things like this most cases the children were bright articulate able to stand on their own not known to be victims or vulnerable by the key guard saving industries the rich escalates true risks weren't considered mm -hmm. the risks were known but they weren't considered the agencies involved, like the RS, um, no, not RSPCA, uh, NSPC, NSPCC, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, didn't do enough. Survivors say there weren't opportunities taken to understand the child and the risk. And bizarrely, I think was something you mentioned earlier as well, the child can sometimes be seen as the criminal. Yeah, 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 and committing crimes under duress clouds their innocence. So they've done all these things, been mentally twisted and manipulated and convinced by someone who is a complete narcissistic evil bastard yeah. and they've gone and suddenly they're the ones who get in trouble yeah and you know we see it um in, in kind of connected slightly different but connected um set of issues or set of examples is um you know young women or young girls who are groomed for child sexual exploitation mm. you know so some of the things we were looking at is is um these things are linked you know we were looking at kind of a broader umbrella if you like of, of child um, criminal exploitation which is usually this county lines thing which is about carrying or transporting drugs or money or whatever but if you're thinking about you know cases that have made the news you know over the years around um the grooming and kind of sexual exploitation of young girls and women young women these are children and yet they the press and kind of maybe sometimes um public perception or narratives are about these these girls and their reputations get questioned as if somehow they are promiscuous or you know they're in some way it's their fault and it's like hang on they're like 14 15 year olds have been exploited exploited it's, exactly <laughs> exactly so there's like yeah. there's really kind of powerful narratives that circulate societally um yeah. that need to, you know need to be challenged as well as as just kind of going in and trying to get young people and children to be aware and on their guard and I mean, it's awful in a way, I feel, our story, because it's kind of like saying, don't trust anyone. 
And what an awful message, you know, it's like, don't trust that person who seems really friendly and you're chatting in the chip shop. Don't trust them because they might be going to manipulate and exploit you. Yeah. Um. Yeah. How bleak. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that that's, I'm sure that's not the message you're sending out. Of course not. But I think it's just about, <laughs> it's just about being aware in a way. And um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Another thing that's quite interesting I thought about was, um, you know, we talk about kids, 12, 15, etc. But there was a film made a few years ago called The Mule. I'm not sure if you heard of it. It's with Clint Eastwood. Oh, yeah. And Clint Eastwood, interestingly, is on the opposite end of the spectrum or the other side of the coin. Clint Eastwood plays this retired 80 plus year old man in America with no job, but broken family, doesn't mm-hmm. engage with his ex-wife. Um, very interesting relationship with his daughter. It's not strong at all, but it's there in a way. And yet he needs something to do. And suddenly he gets involved with this company. He starts talking to a stranger mm-hmm. who says, mm-hmm. who's friendly to him, say, look, oh, I've got my, my cousin. He needs a bit of help transporting something. Would you be able to do some driving? Mm. He was like, yeah, I love driving. Yeah, I'd love to do something like that. And uh, he gets involved. He drives to this garage. They load up his car with bags. They don't let him see the bags. Mm. And then all he has to do is drive to this place and your money will be there for you. Yeah. And he later finds out the mule, the title of the film being The Mule, he's transporting cocaine across mm. the country. Yeah. And I'm not talking like one or two bags. I'm talking 30, 40 kilos at any one time. Mm. And so again, obviously this is not a competition in any sense of the imagination at all, but it's interesting to see it happening from another perspective, another different age range, don't think. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it happens to people who are adults and sometimes maybe, I mean, there's something, it's called cuckooing, where, um, you know, a set of people, criminal, people involved in criminality will Mm. kind of take over someone's home. Mm -hmm. So um, typically or maybe stereotypically, that might be somebody who is, um, again, a bit more vulnerable. So maybe um, there might be a recovering addict and they're getting support, um, but they're still quite vulnerable. Or it maybe it's an adult with a learning disability. Um, and again, so that, again they're, they're in a way easier to kind of target and you know manipulate um and you know maybe the structures around people are under such pressure at the moment you know financially the the support isn't perhaps as good as it should be to kind of help keep people safe vulnerable people Mm. um and then yeah their their home gets kind of taken over and becomes then the point of connection for drugs to be exchanged or whatever and it's like this was that person's home and now it isn't it's been literally like a cuckoo takes over another bird's nest you know these people have come in I mean you're making me think of there's a really brilliant play called um mules and it's by Winsome Mm -hmm. Pinnock and it's really brilliant I think you know that's the story of um Mm-hmm. A, a group of women who uh, are yeah mules drug mules and they carry drugs internationally that's a kind of I suppose that film's got um, a piece of theatre it's not a film it's a play that's got a kind of international angle to it where women are bringing drugs from one country to another and that's about how actually when you do that the risk of the parcel of drugs that you've got inside your body to bring it across customs bursts and mm. people die whilst waiting in the passport line. Mm. So again, it's another piece of theatre that kind of um, 
yeah wants to tell people about these things that happen that people might not be aware of and, and you know raise awareness of some of those kind of just awful awful things that some yeah. people do to other people yeah yeah it's you know just reading and about this you know it's, it's you know i remember funny enough, i went to school just up the road from here and uh, there was a couple of it thankfully not many at all in the whole how many years was that seven years i was there Across the whole seven years, there was only a couple of times where the teachers would set us all down and go, look, there was an incident on Oakwood Drive yesterday. Some lads in a car approached a year seven to say, like, we'll take you home or something, or would you like something? And then and they said, look, be on your guard. You know, yeah. when you leave school, leave with people you trust, leave with friends, make sure you know where your mom or your dad is to pick you up. You know, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a scary thing, but yeah. um but just to sort of, you know, I loved hearing it. Don't get me wrong, Catherine. It's great to hear all this. But just on the flip side, mm. um, so say if someone, so you've, you've got this project, you want to potentially maybe put it into a theatre or create a production. So someone gives you £100,000 and says, let's get this thing up on its feet and to a live audience. What yeah. What would your answer be? And if it mm. was yes, what would you do? Yeah, that's a great oh I love that idea of someone just coming along giving me a hundred thousand pounds yeah it's a very um, nice thought actually it's yeah it's nice great That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> um I mean I, th I could there's so many things we could do next with this project I think I mean oh, what a great question my brain's just kind of gone alive with ideas <laughs> I think for me it would be a bit of a dilemma around doing the same thing because we had such a positive response from people um, you know, a lot of kind of creative effort and um, consultation with a lot of like really brilliant people involved in children's services and stuff. Like all of that's gone into creating this simple but lovely little resource. Part of me would want to keep using it because mm -hmm. we had the opportunity and we used mm -hmm. it during the pandemic and we reached yeah. to reach. But I'd want to kind of I want more people to have that opportunity. Mm. Um so yeah, would I use money to kind of spread it even further and take it to all counties and make it go national? Um, that would definitely be something I'd want to do. We are we are now that I've changed jobs and I now work in Surrey. Um, I've I've secured a bit more funding to um revisit everybody that we worked with the first time and just talk to them about any impact you know it was one thing doing it there and then and people responding positively Amazing. but I want to go back to them kind of two years on and say did you use the story again you know what you know just just to hear kind of some of what came after mm. that moment when we all worked together yeah. and we are going to um yeah bring the story to a whole bunch more schools in in around the university in this area in this geographical region so mm. I think yes I'd be really um inclined to kind of try and take it wider at the same time this would need more than a hundred thousand pounds so if you meet a person who's got even more than that I would be really keen <laughs> to either one of the bits of feedback from the twine game was that um People are so attuned now to kind of extremely expensively made video games mm -hmm. that while the low tech thing is quite cool and quirky, quite a few people, interestingly, it was more the adults than the kids, but adults would say, oh, it'd be good if there was like an avatar and you could choose which character. So you could almost be like, you know, you'd have player 
choices about who the protagonist was or they they could imagine a bit more of a let's say kind of technologically sophisticated kind of platform for the for the story to be experienced through um and that that would be quite compelling to think you know we we made that story with about ten thousand pounds so mm. what could we make if we had two hundred thousand pounds yeah or whatever it takes to make a really snazzy kind of very interactive kind of platform mm-hmm. um but of course we landed on the digital and the interactive thing because of the pandemic and we couldn't go, we couldn't do the live. And I am more of a kind of drama, theatre and performance person. So, yeah, I think, I guess my heart and my head would be more inclined to think, how could we kind of re theatre this thing yeah. that became digital and still kind of, yes, explore this story and do it with young people in a really kind of participatory way. Um, but do it using theatre and drama and performance. Go go back to kind of the origins of the idea. Yeah. yeah. Do you think you'd ever want it? So, somewhat, if a playwright approached you to mm. put this on, what yeah. would you proceed? Yeah. Yeah, hugely. Because that's that, that's something. Because I know we in our discussions about prior for today, we talked about the play um, A Little Life, which mm. is currently appearing in town, starring you know James Norton and stuff. Mm. And I was thinking about that play because it really, for anyone who's not familiar with the book or anything, this is just a brief oversight. Um, and if you've got tickets to the show, don't worry, I'm not going to reveal anything because no I don't know. The... No spoilers. Yeah, because, well, you've, you've, you know, because you've read the book. I haven't. So mm. <laughs> don't worry. No spoilers or anything. Uh, so it's a story about, from what I gather anyway, it's a story about abuse. It's a story about um, manipulation. It's a story about the dark, again, the dark side of a psyche of someone who struggled with abuse for many years. Um, and I was thinking about this um, in terms of this, and this is a question I sort of posed to you for today, which was, you know, with it, with your case and a little life, um, actually just more about a little life, is that on Twitter, there was an initial reaction to it and from people who hadn't, who hadn't read the book or yeah. knew of it and just went, just because it's James Norton from Happy Valley. And, um, you know, and that's not to discredit James. Hi, James. Love your work. Uh, and, uh, you know, some people put on Twitter after they went to see it, I went for James Norton and I left with trauma. Yeah. And, uh, and okay. And, and you're thinking to yourself, did you not read what the story was about before you went or anything like that? But, uh, but in terms of that, because there's been such a huge, like, different polarities of reaction to that show and I'm sure if if your show was put on like in that way as well I'm sure mm-hmm. there would be a lot of you know debate about it as well but do you think how far do you think theatre can go mm. before it becomes too much and what I mean what I mean by too much is to the point where the audience will just go I I can't I can't watch yeah. that anymore it's, it's shut down yeah, yeah I, I just I just can't so mm. How far do you think theatre can go, do you think, before it gets too oh, much? I mean, theatre does go to really far extreme places, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, of course. I think, I think um, on the whole, gosh, this is such a good topic of discussion. I think on the whole, we we generally people, we go and see things that we we already know we're going to like in a way like yeah. it's, yes we'll we get challenged but I think it's often within a kind of like certain parameters you know um 
like I've been to see things by you know performers who um physically harm their own bodies live you know it's more performance art we might say um yeah. but I knew I was going to see that and I kind of went because I was really intrigued and I wanted to see this example of this quite extreme performance practice um and yeah someone who kind of pierces their own body or cuts their body as part of their performance practice and so even when I kind of knew what this was going to involve you still have this quite visceral quite kind of physical response to this thing that you're part of in that moment and I remember um yeah feeling feeling feelings you know it's not all in your head it's not all about your kind of cognitive responses mm -hmm. and at that event I was feeling these feelings of like blimey this is really intense and oh how interesting that's actually making me feel a bit sick I was having these you know mm. but and then there was people were leaving walking out because they wow. you know because they like you say thought I can't do this like they've decided for whatever reason this is not actually interesting enough I don't want to watch this or they're mm. feeling faint they might pass out so they leave um so I think theatre does does that um and I guess how when is it too much? I think that's really varied from person to person. Like yeah. some people, yeah, nothing will ever be too much, and they're kind of seeking the extreme. And then other people maybe have gone to see James Norton because he's like off the telly or super good looking or whatever you know whatever mm -hmm. it is that people go and see uh, those actors for. And then yes, they had no sense of what. The book is about and it's like oh well you made a mistake there because if you yeah. knew what the book was about you'd have known what what you might be faced with at the theater yeah. that night yeah yeah that's a bit of a bit of a shock yeah uh, but um basically... it's such a good book can i just say to anyone yeah. who's listening read the book it's one of the best books i think i've ever read in my whole life it's absolutely incredible that book yeah, yeah. i want to read it now i it's want to brilliant. read it you know funny if i looked up it's nine pounds 30 on amazon now guys so get it once totally worth it yeah <laughs> and can I also here's a little story I was yeah, reading yeah. that book there's two things about what happened when I was reading that book I was um just before I just started reading it so I wasn't very far in and I met someone for a meeting I had to go meet them in a reception area and yeah. I walked up to them and they were reading that book and I thought well I've just started reading that but I, I hadn't got anywhere near anything intense yet it was like early days chapter one or two mm -hmm. and um this person was so clearly so deeply engrossed in their book sitting in reception waiting for me that I kind of hung back for a minute so I, I kind of I just had this feeling that I shouldn't interrupt yeah. the moment and I've always thought what point were they at what moment were they at in the story now I've read it and I'm, I've never asked them I probably never will but I, I always wonder mm. and then once I was further into the book and I was like it was so good um, had a weekend away and as I left the Airbnb I shut the door to with the keys inside and I went my book uh, I've left my book inside and I couldn't oh. get it so I had to buy it again straight away went straight oh. to the bookshop and bought it again it's, it's worth it <laughs> <laughs> and also if you had asked oh, what bit are you up to and then she'd go oh are you reading it yeah okay it's, it's this bit and you go no 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 now I know no, I'm, not there yeah, yet. Yeah. I'm not there yet yeah. <laughs> But just uh, also, I think there's another part of theatre. I think I remember seeing um, 
there's a great company called the Monobox, and they did this live podcast recording with Denise Goff, um, Derek Jacobi, and um, oh no, I can't remember the third one. Sorry, uh, if you're listening, um, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look this up. It, it's mm. it'll come to me in a second. Um, so, but they were talking about um, Jenna Russell. I think that was it. Yes, Jenna Russell, great mm. actress. Um, they were talking about how much they love their job, like being in theatre specifically. And they made a very interesting point of saying that even if the audience loves what we do or absolutely hates it, we still think that's brilliant. And mm-hmm. because they told stories about how people in the audience would just get up and walk out going, no, no, this is not for me. Yeah. No, this is not good. Um, Derek Jacoby did a play called The Staircase, which is about two uh, gay hairdressers. And I think this was in the 60s in Ireland. And uh, as soon as like five minutes into the play, people were already up, 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 up went the seats and they all just walked out because they knew what it was about and they just wrote it off immediately. Mm. Um, But I think that's a brilliant way of saying that plays like A Little Life and of course, and your projects as well, they really show us reality and they show us like everything that, you know, what's theatre is there to show us what happens in life. And, and I think well. I think we've got um I I totally agree and that you know example of um you know me going to see kind of quite extreme performance as an adult it's like a, you make your free choices of what you want to do and how you spend your money and all that yeah I think of when it comes to kind of if thinking about your question in relation to a story about child criminal exploitation when it's something that young people are going to encounter I think there's a different issue because we have this kind of ethical responsibility then to the participants in our project let's say more broadly and that would that's me thinking more broadly about kind of all applied theatre practice mm-hmm. and then in particular for this project it is it's about you know if we're helping teachers to explore this issue in their classrooms we all have a responsibility to do that in a way that is, um, you know, trauma informed. That would be an expression that kind of youth work and children's services practitioners would really be thinking about, you know, touching on and exploring these topics that are really important, but in a way that is not going to further exacerbate mm-hmm. any trauma that a young person may have experienced or even, you know, just start something off like you don't want to traumatize someone you don't want to do any harm yeah you're there your practice and your intentions are to to do good yeah and that's obviously putting it so incredibly simply and it isn't simple it's complex but I think you know your question of kind of when can something be too much and I said well it kind of depends if we're thinking about you know stories and issues with young people Mm. you've just got a whole then set of things to think about around um you know doing that at an appropriate kind of level that's age appropriate and that's you know suitable for their context and that's why talking with the teachers is so important because they know their students and their group and their school Mm. I think also it's about the signposting and the kind of support that you can put in place so that if in that class of 30 60 kids somebody's sitting thinking this has already happened to me or this has happened to my friend and actually it's making me realize I need to tell someone or you know it's like if if we're talking about complex issues Mm. it will um 
provoke something, some thoughts. I mean, that's the point after all. So we have to then be ready to kind of have things in place to support people as they continue to think about the issue and then maybe take action. So you can't just do it and then leave and not think anymore about those people. There's a mm. there's yeah. a kind of yeah, significant ethical responsibility to the work there. Mm. Hugely. Mm. You know, I agree with that hundred hundred percent. I'm just, I'm just, we are slightly pushed for time today because I know you've got to shoot off to do other things. So I've just got two more questions for yeah. you today, um, Catherine. So, well, first of all, thank you for today. This has been amazing. So I can't, I've just looked at the time. I can't believe that much time has gone by. No, I know. It's flown Ooh. by. This is great. No, I've loved it. I've loved it, Catherine. Thank you. Um, so just two questions. Uh, first of all, um, for anyone who's watching or listening who is an aspiring theatre maker, and of course, GSA has an applied theatre course, mm-hmm. apply apply, guys if you want to do it. Um, it's I'm sure it's magnificent. The teaching you get at this place is amazing. And you've got someone like Catherine who's so passionate about this 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 topic you know you're in very safe hands so but the question for you is for anyone who's thinking about doing a theater to make a course or wants to become one what advice would you would you have for them to mm. follow, follow their dreams i mean if it, yeah read 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 that would be my advice and visit places so if people are thinking about doing a degree as part of a kind of you know that's that's training essentially to become a theater maker a theater practitioner i think just really explore all the options that are available to people um often it seems you know from people when you do drama at school I think people it you know we we're taught certain things at school and then we see that as an option maybe it's you've done lots of musicals or something so musical theater you can see it clearly as a kind of pathway Mm. but um yeah of course working somewhere like GSA or you know there's lots of other drama schools or university drama departments. There's so much um, available and it might be actually theatre production and the more kind of stage management and technical theatre that people are interested in. There's brilliant programmes that train you up on all aspects of that stuff. There's, you know, now lots of different kind of applied theatre, community arts, theatre, socially engaged theatre, um, if you're really interested in that kind of use of drama and theatre within different community settings. And then, of course, there are brilliant performer training programmes in acting and musical theatre. Yeah. Um, here we've got an actor-musician programme that's, that's you know, different again. So I think there's um, a lot more choice or a lot more options than people perhaps initially think. So, yeah, visit places um do lots of reading come and see us come to open days come and have a look around um get to know it get to know it and then um yeah I think it's through those things and through chatting when you come to an open day here you meet students that are already on the courses and they're brilliant conversations they're telling you you know exactly what it's like day in day out Mm. um yeah I think that that's a really that's that's a great way to to just I suppose search inside your own mind um what it is really what do you really want to spend the next three years or or one or two years if it's postgraduate study that you're interested in yeah um because there's so much choice available yeah because like what stories do you want to tell and what how do you want to create them in a way what makes you excited what what story makes you happy and all that and just what opportunities the courses will give you so our applied in contemporary theater course at the moment, our second years are all out on placements. It's they're in the, the third term of their second year, 
so they're all they're all over the place um doing you know theater making within different community settings different theater companies and yeah. having these kind of actual you know sustained proper experiences of being in a workplace and you know taking on a role um so yeah again having a look at not just the course but exactly you know what kinds of experiences will you get while you're on on that course yeah hugely fantastic you know you know discover your dreams guys and tell us your stories more than anything mm-hmm. you know tell us what makes you happy and you'll be there on the big stage getting those reviews and everything behind you and people begging to work with you and all that stuff and uh fantastic and just finally today this is the closing question for every guest yeah what's been an experience or experiences you've had in your career thus far that you're never ever gonna forget well listen i'm of an age where i've had quite a few of those (laughs) tell me all of them tell me all Um, of them (laughs) experiences i'll never forget i think this i would honestly say the things that you know if i'm driving home and your mind is floating going from this to that or things that kind of really stay in my mind and will forever they're 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 student achievements actually Mm. which and you know i've had a career as a teacher and as a kind of a person working within a learning institution so when people come and study and learn and experience something and then they achieve their dream Mm. those are the things that stick with you they're just so amazing so you know it's things like the first person that I was a PhD supervisor for you know when she completed and she graduated with her PhD you know I was so proud of her um, achieving what is such a challenging thing to set out to do and and actually achieve so I'll never forget that I'll never forget that day Mm. um I mean yeah even then just and that was years ago um I think even just recently so you said at the beginning that I'm just about in fact today is my one year anniversary at GSA to the day yeah I know that's a bit about that so it's it's (laughs) this this time a year ago on a Monday was my first day here in my job as the head of GSA um and in that time I've met so many people and um you know recently I was at a postgraduate graduation ceremony here mm. and even though those people that graduated that day I had much much less to do with their experience I was not their supervisor for their PhDs but there were PhD people graduating that day um but just to see, again, it's here and chat to them afterwards. You know, they, I, I have a role at graduation. I have to doff my funny yeah. hat to I people. As, yeah. Come on, yeah, <laughs> that's my important job. Um, and we we lock eyes and we doff and we look and I'm like, congratulations, because it's major what you've just achieved. <laughs> and then if I can, I get and to chat to people afterwards. Um, and yeah, hearing all the things that people. I've done over their time. I was chatting this time to some people that did our, um, we've got an online program. So you can do a BA or an MA online. So mm. those are people that are not here at the GSA every day, you mm. know, they're studying remotely. Sometimes we're in another country. 
they've got loads of other things going on in their lives. They've got jobs and families and they're fitting their studies in around all of that. And I met a few of those graduates and they just, you know, their pride in what they've achieved and the extent to which they spoke about the joy that they experienced in learning and thinking and reflecting, reading, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel like a joy when there's a deadline, but kind of meeting deadlines and kind of basically graduating with an MA at the end of it. You know, they were just, that's great. I, I don't, I never forget those conversations. Mm. It's when people achieve what they set out to do. It's fab. I love it. Yeah. That's a very humble account. <laughs> that's a very humble thing. It was, it's brilliant. It's just, yeah, it's such a joy to feel that, you know, the people I work with here, this amazing group of staff yeah. in all different ways, supporting people's kind of ambitions and aspirations to enter into kind of learning and enter into the creative and cultural industry in some way. And, you know, we play our part in that in helping people to to achieve those things. I think, yeah, that's kind of why we get up every day and come to work. It's great. Yeah. Fantastic. Nice. Catherine, thank you so much for today. This has been a really, really great chat. I've really enjoyed listening to you about your experience and everything. You're you're providing a real insight into something which is from again from these news reports is not getting enough coverage as it so rightfully should need to. And uh, the the difference you're making, and not only at GSA but in children's lives across the schools and across this country. I'm sure it'll be a lot more. It will be a lot more. Um, they'll get to know your work and this program and everything, and they'll see the incredible work that you're doing. And um, so, yeah, thank you for taking me through that. It's been a pleasure listening to you. Um, if you just if you just hang on, I'll finish the recording. I'll say goodbye to you one-to-one. But guys, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. This has been the Uncensored Critic Podcast. And we'll be back very soon. And once again, Catherine McNamara, thank you. Thanks very much.